You're listening to the Silicon Valley Podcast. On today's show, we sit down with John McNulty. Now, John was on our show before and gave us a ton of information on his career. But I want to let everyone know there is a little bit of background noise in this recording from the street, from construction work that was getting done. So apologize in advance for the quality, but it's still an amazing episode. It's still studio quality of the sound, so don't worry about it. We always keep our standards high, but with that, Let's start the episode. All right, enjoy. Welcome to the Silicon Valley Podcast with your host, Sean Flynn, who interviews famous entrepreneurs, venture capitalists, and leaders in tech. Learn their secrets and see tomorrow's world today. John, thank you for taking the time today to be on the Silicon Valley Podcast now. I'm very excited about today's episode. It's the follow-up, I guess, from our first interview that happened about a year and a half ago. So it's been some time. And uh, before we even start, I want to thank James for setting up this interview. This is with a collaboration with the Intel Alumni Network, who we partnered with. We've already interviewed Avery Miller. We've interviewed Gene. We, actually, there's quite a few that we have lined up to interview with this partnership. So I'm really excited about today's episode. But John, for our audience, can you give them a little bit of a reminder of your career up until this point? That's a, a long career because I'm an old guy, <laughs> but it's great to be back with you, Sean. I started in my, my first job in the, in the technology world was with Honeywell Information Systems when Honeywell Information Systems was the number two computer vendor in the world. So a long, long time ago, I was there for almost, well, it was 13 years and nine months. And I went from Honeywell to Intel. And I had two four-year stints with Intel with 10 years in between. In those 10 years in between, I was with two small startup companies. Went back to Intel after my second four-year stint. I left and I went to Genesis Telecom. From there, I retired for the first, first try at retirement. And uh, then I went to uh, Secure Computing, which was a public company, a turnaround situation as, as the CEO. It was a fascinating time. I think we had a lot of success. Secure was bought nine years later by McAfee, and I retired for the second time. That lasted two years. And then I was talked back into a, a third try a startup world with Interact Public Safety. And that was, I think it was four years and nine months and five days and six hours, but interesting one. So then I retired and that's successfully now six and a half years of retirement. Okay. So by the time this interview is over, you'll probably get another job offer. Uh, I, you know, that's one of the reasons I moved to uh, Northern Nevada. It's too far out of the mainstream. It's okay. Everyone's <laughs> working remote these days. <laughs> John, we got to dive a little bit deeper, though, into your career at, well, each of these places. But first, let's start with Honeywell and Intel. Yeah. Everyone's heard of those companies' names. Everyone has stories about their, their rise, their, their peaks, troughs, peaks, troughs. What was the difference from your experience with your time at Honeywell and your time at Intel? No, no uh, disrespect to Honeywell, but I learned more in any one year at Intel than I did in the entire time I was at Honeywell about running a business. And so it was a culture thing. The Intel culture was one of, was a very aggressive, very dynamic culture. And the Honeywell culture was, it was stuck in something from the 1950s, I think, or before. They didn't move that fast. They were thinking about five and 10 year plans when Intel was doing a a two year look forward spending enormous energy on what what's coming next and 
how to make their existing products obsolete with new products. Honeywell just didn't do that. So wait, how did Intel culture then scale with the company? Because I mean, from my understanding, Intel went from 5 million to 5 billion in sales rather quickly. Did the culture scale with that or did it every milestone kind of change? The culture scaled perfectly and there was no disruption in that culture. When I left after four years, I still bleed Intel blue from basically the very first part of my Intel career till today. But that culture scaled and I haven't really been exposed to any other cultures that scaled nearly as well. Either they seem to break as companies go through. Intel's culture was the same culture when I left the second time, which was really 18 years after I started, as it was when I first began. It was a a culture based on meritocracy, based on goals and objectives on a quarterly basis for everyone in the company and for every organization in the company. It was a culture that you really had to embrace or you wouldn't be successful at Intel. It was kind of like uh, I related down to the science fiction uh, thing at the board. You will be assimilated. And if if you didn't assimilate, you just weren't going to make it at Intel. So I embraced it fully. And 95% of the Intel culture was what I used to run the four companies after I learned that culture at Intel as CEO. It was, it works. It works and it scales. And I think it makes people perform the best. And there's a satisfaction for the individuals, for the, the teams and for the company. You're lucky our audience is big seven and nine fans, and we all know about Star Trek and the Borg. (laughs) With that culture scaling, though, just wondering, should it have adapted at all when it was such a small company to a large corporation? Or is that micro goals, quarterly goals, yearly goals, something that is effective at all sizes of companies? I I guess it's open to debate, but what I experienced and what Intel proved is it did scale. Because it didn't change. That culture was the same 18 years later. And and I give all the credit really to Andy Grove was the operational genius that drove the cult into the organization and his his teams, the general managers, the, the group vice presidents embraced it totally and completely. And so that it worked from the bottom up. At your time at Intel. Was Intel's products always the most superior? Was there ever a time that maybe the best product didn't win? In the technology world, there's lots of examples of the, of the best product not winning. The classic the people, the Betamax versus VHS. Intel really had a, the culture forced us to think about building the very best and then making it obsolete by the next, next edition, if you will. So I think Intel had very, very competitive products, really from day one to the entire time I was there. And I still believe they make very competitive products. They, they think about it as a whole, not just a, a single thing that they're going to be best at. They think about the use of the technology, how it all comes together to form a, a solution. Now, is there any story, and I've heard this before about the 16K RAM chip, and partials. Now, I'm not sure what partials are. I think you're going to have to explain that a little to our audience, but this little bee in the background told me I have to ask this this question to you. 
The interesting thing, I was the general manager of a group organization called Memory and Microsystems. And Intel was making the transition uh, and the timing was, I I guess, uh, about 1980. They were getting out of the memory business per se, but we still were making lots of chips. One of our leading engineers in the organization who became an Intel fellow and a senior fellow, I believe, before he retired, Richard Wirt, came up with the idea that the 16K chips that partials could be utilized in a product that the company had architected and we were designing when I got in called the 3805. It was very high performance relative to what it was competing with in the marketplace, which was a product made from by IBM called the 2305. And I think there were two versions of it, 2305, one and two. The one was faster than the other. Its access time was two milliseconds. And what the team led by, by Richard and his thought process came up with was when a chip, a memory chip had a bad component or portion of it was bad, they threw it away. Either it was not fast enough, it wouldn't do the cycle time, which for memory was, if I recall right, 10 or 20 microseconds cycle time, they would throw it away. If it was fast enough, but one quadrant of the chip, you tested it in quadrants, one quadrant or two quadrants were bad, you threw it away. So Richard and came up with the idea that we can use partials in the 3805 because this access speed for the 3805 was 400 microseconds, blazingly fast, five times faster than IBM's rotating drums, but incredibly slow compared to the cycle time. Of, and what we were able to do is take what we was going to be thrown in the trash, half good chips and three quarter good chips, and utilize them in the 3805. You had to group them all in a, in the same rack, if you will, half good, three quarter good, or fully good that had the, at least 400 microsecond access time, which was almost a hundred percent. And you were making it with zero cost effective components. And 3805 became incredibly successful for Intel was, I'm told, because a lot of it was done after I left in 83 in the sales side but it was the most profitable product in Intel for many years. It was so good that IBM removed every 2305 they had in all their internal systems, and they refurbished them and sold them to customers and replaced them with 3805s, which was really comical. We wouldn't talk about it back then, but that was so long ago now that it doesn't matter. So John, when Intel was taking a chip to market, was there different strategies depending on who the end user was? That's an interesting question. When I was hired, I helped Intel get into the systems business. Systems meaning commercial data processing applications. Intel was selling their products to engineers on the development side. And engineers would take a product and be be comfortable if it wasn't ready for prime time. That was a mentality that Intel had because you'd you'd talk to the engineers on the customer side and say, this is all good except for we're working on this one area. So you might have some problems there, but we're fixing it. And that was a mindset that existed to some degree with when we started to take products into the commercial data processing market. And that doesn't work. (laughs) It either works or it doesn't. (laughs) And, And there was a little bit of a learning curve that we went through as a company 
and an organization where we we say the product is 90% done and the movement to say, well, if it's 90% functional and it's you know 95% functional, let's get it out there and let people work with it. It'll make it better. And I no, that's not what we do <laughs> in the selling to uh, banks and insurance companies and, and in the big data processing arena. So uh, that was a little bit of a learning curve that the, uh, the company went through. I can only imagine 95% okay. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, it it was a little bit. And it it was just the experience of selling to development engineers to take a chip that might be 99% good and don't use this particular function because it's not right yet. You know, and everything was get it to market, get it to market. And the engineers on the development side that we were selling the components to were, were fine with that. Or we're fine with the development workstation that Intel would provide uh, that wasn't 100%. But you couldn't take a, a data processing environment and say it's you know, 98% good. Quick question. And before, I, I mean, I, I definitely want to talk about, I got a long list of questions, but why was there so much pressure to get the chips to market when there was 95% there? Was that more for the shareholders, for upper management, or was it just that's how things were done. Well, I think it was on the component side. That's really, I, th- I believe, how things were done because it would speed things to market. All the, all the companies that Intel was selling to, and if you think back to the, the early 80s, they were companies like IBM and NEC and HP and around the world, people building workstation or desktop computing. It was, there was a tremendous race by these head up competitors around the world to get the next great thing to market first. And so they would be happy to have their engineers work on something, a component, let's say, or a microprocessor that did everything but this 2% correctly. And that was very acceptable. The world was, for those days, moving very, very fast compared to today. It's still in slow motion. So with that, working with other companies, engineers, other companies, teams, partnerships, how did the SAP partnership with TuneIn Software, how did that partnership increase the value for everyone? That was an interesting one because one of the things that I I brought to the company along with a number of other people that came from the systems business was the hardware was secondary in the uh, attacking the, the market in the uh, commercial data processing space. It was driven by the software. That's where the real value was. And that's where the differentiation could be made using the same components. In, Intel, for many years and maybe probably to this day, still build, builds the motherboards for servers and desktops for you know, a huge portion of the industry. And they put their own spin on it with the software. Uh, when I came back to Intel in 1993, Intel had just brought a number of relatively high-performance servers to marketplace, and the the key was that all of the software in the industry in '93 was written for IBM AS400s and their large mainframes, the 360 mainframes and the like. There was no software being written for the the small servers, Intel was leading the way on. Those small servers were small in stature, but incredibly high in performance. Intel brought to market the Pentium 
series of servers through which was led by Compaq, if I remember correctly. That was, and then the, the second, the Pentium Pro, was led by Dell, first to market. The key for those to be successful, and we got everybody on board in this strategy, with making the solutions that the enterprise was buying run best on Intel architecture, best from the standpoint of price performance. And I, I can remember a, a meeting between Hasso Plattner, the founder, CEO of, of SAP, Andy Grove, and they, they really hit it off. And I, I can remember Andy holding up a Pentium Pro processor board, which was probably, I can't remember the, the dimensions, but it was maybe 28 or 30 inches long and 24 inches wide or 20 inches wide. And he talked about how many transactions per second in the standard transaction processing test this could run and then said what it was what it would cost and i've never seen uh, anybody more excited about a product than hasso was at that point because sap was all about transaction processing and he realized that getting sap software on that board would be an incredible success what we did at intel and this was led by uh, stu goosen and richard wirt Again, the same Richard that envisioned the 3805, they put together a team to make the enterprise software world run best on Intel. Put together a fairly good-sized team up in, in outside of Portland, Oregon. Jones Farm, I, I think, was the, uh, and Hillsborough was the original location. And that team grew to quite a, quite a sizable group. They developed tools which would allow commercial software to be given to the team. They would to make the performance exceptional on Intel. And then the price performance of the Pentium with exceptional performance on the software side, because it was tuned to Intel, it became a huge success in the, in the marketplace. When we started in 1980, uh, I'm sorry, 1993, Intel had about 85 or 90% of file and print servers in the enterprise, but only about 4, 5% maybe of enterprise, of application servers. Four years later, Intel's strategy then was to make enterprise software, and the leader in enterprise software was SAP at that point for application software for the enterprise. That was also one of the strengths of Oracle. So they were the first two companies we brought into the labs to make their software run best on Intel. And the end result was fantastic price performance of their software on Intel architecture. And so that, that, that software dragged the Intel architecture into the picture. So Intel went from having 4 or 5% of application servers in the enterprise to over, uh, I think it was 78% in 1997, four-year timeframe. Very, very profitable growth. Because these were, relatively speaking, very expensive products for Intel to sell. So John, was that the strategy of how Intel servers entered the enterprise market or was there another strategy behind that? Uh, absolutely. That was the fundamental foundation of the strategy. It was focused on providing a solution because in the enterprise, all they care about is the solution. And that solution with great price performance is going to be a winner. And so we, by tuning the software from SAP and from Oracle and you know, numerous other database companies and application companies. Over time, the transaction processing capabilities of Intel basically destroyed its competition. Now, the price performance, the transactions per second 
that were capable of being generated by Intel's what we called standard high volume servers, which was the entire lineup of Pentium, Pentium Pro and the next generations after that server just became a world beater. And we went from four or 5% to 78% or more of the enterprise marketplace server. So how do you think, I mean, the mindset, the culture, everything, how did Intel succeed? You know, to me, I, it succeeded because it was led by a, you know, a brilliant leadership team, Bob Noyce, Gordon Moore, and Andy Grove. Andy drilled the culture down. And that culture at Intel, they, everybody understood how they fit into the organization, what their responsibility was, what the team uh, was depending on them for. And everybody felt good about winning. And it was an era where the stock kept going up and everybody was a shareholder of one magnitude or another. And it was a win-win kind of situation. You did good, you wanted to do better. And Intel, part of Intel's culture was something that everybody referred to and is, is a great name, continuous improvement. You, you have to keep getting. And Andy was a, you know, a heck of a competitor. And remember the Yogi Berra, don't look back, somebody's gaining on you. Every revision, every every quarter do better than you did the last quarter, whether it was at the chip level with yields or enterprise servers generating transaction processing records, which, which we did. We kept breaking all the records for transactions per second and cost per transactions per second. It led the way. And John, why do you think you were able to take so many lessons away from your time at Intel? It might relate back a little, Sean, to at Honeywell, they didn't they didn't have anything that would drive an organization. I, I like to say that every company has a culture, even if it's a lack of a culture. At Honeywell Information Systems, and back in the day when I was there, there, there wasn't a culture. It was everybody doing what they thought they should be doing, and they did it at their own pace. There wasn't something driving things forward like there was at Intel. And I think the Intel culture just forced us to be better every, all the time, continuously improve what you were responsible for and keep looking for, for ways to do better. Like Richard Wirt coming up with using partials in the 3805 or Stu and creating incredible tools to analyze the, the way software was working and how you could tune that software to take best uh, advantage of Intel's computing architecture. So it, it just all plays together. And with your time at Intel and even past, you've kept your relationships alive with the Intel alumni network. Even before right now, was there any time that an old relationship that you maintained changed your life? Well, I, I guess I maintained a nice relationship with Andy after I left the first time. And I called them 10 years later to ask him for advice to just what he, what he thought I should do next. And uh, he, he kind of jumped on that and said, I asked him if I could buy him lunch. He said, no, I'm going to buy you lunch. Can you come today? Because I was a mile or two away. We had sold the company that I was running and uh, I, I didn't want to do another startup per se. And he said, I've got exactly the right thing for you. And that brought me back to Intel after 10 years. So that's a relationship that I'm, I'm delighted. I was thrilled that I maintained. And, you know, he thought enough of me to say, come on over and let's talk. Uh, and I got a job offer that day <laughs> and accepted it. <laughs>
So that was one of the many times you're unable to retire. Can you tell us a little bit about more the fact that you never were able to? Well, I, I, I consider retirement a success on the third try. The first two tries didn't work because the first time I didn't have a plan and I, I was bored. I was playing Mr. Mom, taking the kids to school and picking them up because my wife had a business. And uh, after I got my courage up, I, I knew I was, it wasn't going to work after a couple of months, but it took me. The second time had a plan. I kind of understood what I wanted to do to stay busy. And it, it lasted two years. And I, a couple friends talked me back into a situation that I kind of, kind of, they asked me, what did I want to do it? I did a little consulting and, and said, here's, here's what you got guys. And it's not a good situation. And they said, well, when can you start? And I said, no, I don't want it. And they said, well, just tell us what you want to fix. it." And I told them, and I, I figured I'd ask for the sun, the moon and the stars. And they would say, you're out of your mind. And they said, sure, when can you start? <laughs> so that, that took me back the second time, which that was one that didn't work for anybody. I mean, we, we got out of it gracefully. The employees were taken care of. Uh, nobody made any money. They didn't lose as much as they might have, but it's, it's history. I, th I think you have to be ready. And the third time, I was ready. And then when you would come into one of these companies as the new CEO, what were the first things you would look for in the company? Was it financials? Was it culture? What were the first things that you'd identify as this has to change or I have to work on this? And that's a, that's a great question because I think it's all of the above. I, I would talk to people. I would go around and talk to organizations. If there were multi-sites, I would talk to uh, just individuals in the different sites and in you know groups in the different sites, try and get Kind of a lot of exchange, and it and it gave me a pretty good ask leading questions, if you will, gave me a pretty good idea of you know what the culture was, what the, the hot buttons are, what the sensitivities were. Talk about the competition and how they how the company saw itself versus how the competition sees it, which I could get on the outside, and that maybe four to six weeks, I think you get a pretty good view of what you've got and what has to be done. Leaders, you got to put together a team that, that works. And I always like to have a team that you inherit be successful, but that's not always possible, especially in companies that were struggling. They're struggling maybe for a reason. They didn't have the right horses. So you identify the ones that need to, need to be augmented or replaced, and you have to move fast because progress is, uh, is something that you got to keep showing on a daily, hourly. <laughs> weekly basis, monthly basis, quarterly basis. And that's, that's what makes it hard to do a turnaround. It takes a lot of energy. There's companies that are in multiple sites, uh, multiple time zones and all the rest add other complexities to it. If the thing that you noticed more than anything, or one of them would be the company culture, is that something that's possible to change? And if so, how would one change the culture of a company? First and foremost, I totally believe that a culture is absolutely possible to change a culture, to install a culture. And you have to, the culture comes from the top down, the witness. The culture was the, the you know, Bob, Bob Noyce and Andy Grove, Gordon Moore. But Andy was the guy that drove it into the organizations and on a daily basis. And again, the, the culture has to be established by the leadership. 
and then it has to be enriched on a, on a daily basis. You have to walk the walk, talk the talk, and demand people conform to the culture. Again, they have to be assimilated. They, they absolutely have to be, because if, if we're all not on the same page, it's not going to work. So what I would do when we acquired a company was get an all-hands meeting of the, the company that we were acquiring. I would do all-hands meetings in whatever sites they were, and then a, you know, a conference call type thing for the entire company and drive the fact that here's our values. You know, we're thrilled to have you be, be part of our team. You know, we acquired you because we think you're a wonderful group of people with wonderful products and that we can working together, make even better and have better distribution, wider distribution and the like. And that focus to make their organization become a shining success in the new organization was in some respects a rallying for them individually and collectively. And by going through, here's our values, continuous improvement, meritocracy, constructive confrontation, quarterly objectives and key results for everyone and all organizations that roll up in the starts from the top down, what we want to accomplish in the, in the quarter, in the year, rolls back up from the individuals, teams, groups, and like to the culture, to the uh, goals for the year or quarter for the company. I mean, I'm almost embarrassed to ask this question, but from all your experience of leading all these companies, what are some of the key lessons or key takeaways that you can share with running a business? I I think it starts with commitment from the leader, uh, the person at the top, putting together a team that has the same level of commitment, team success of the company. and driving that mindset down into the organization as you instill the culture. It's something that you have to live and breathe 24-7, lead by example. And no, it's not, it's not an easy job. As, as they say, the easy jobs are all taken. <laughs> well, even now, the easy jobs, there's, there's the easier job of collecting a check. But uh, <laughs> So you've shared experience or knowledge with running a company. Mm-hmm. What about selling a company? Well, selling a company is an interesting, that's an interesting question. And there's a a time and place you want to do it. I think you want to sell the company when it's time to sell. You always want to have two two or more people interested in buying. Uh, If there's only one person interested in buying, it's probably not the right time to sell. Having the right positioning in the marketplace at the right time with the right representation, the bankers, it'll do a good job for you. I think. You want to promise a lot and deliver more. So I'd like to think that when we were selling a company, people would see us from the outside in and they think they're getting X when they come in and fold the covers back, if you will. I said, wow, this is even better. And that's how you want to sell a company. John, when you're not in the idea situation, when there's multiple bidders, when you've wanted to go to market, maybe you're in an uncomfortable situation where but you have to sell the company. And for our audience at home, I do want to give a self-plug when I'm not doing the Silicon Valley podcast. I am a principal at a global capital markets and mid-market investment bank focused mergers, acquisition, raising growth capital and secondary. So everyone out there, go to my LinkedIn, connect with me. But John, back to the question, what happens in a situation like that when it's not ideal, but it has to be done? Sean, that's a tough one. And uh, I've, I've, I've been there. I've been there. You in, in, Smaller companies, it's, it's cash is king. 
And if you need to do things but don't have enough cash to accomplish it yourself, and there's not any appetite in coming from the outside world to invest, it's, it's probably time to sell it. I hate to use the term fire sale, but if you're not careful, you're, the fact that you are in effect holding a fire sale is going to be understood. So you want to avoid that. You want to position the company, tell the truth, attract them in positioning the company and where you are and where you're going. The last situation, which I talked about a little bit, nobody made any money to speak of, and but the employees were taken care of and our customers were basically taken care of also by the acquirer, was a situation that we were kind of up against it. Our investors had put in as much as they could put in. And we all, and, and I, I am absolutely guilty of missing the, the fact that the market that we were addressing, the public safety market for 911 emergency management systems, uh, was not a normal technology market. It was a, it was a political market. 98% of the sheriffs in the United States are responsible or 100% basically of the sheriffs in the United States are responsible for 911 emergency management within their counties, chiefs of police within in the cities. 98% of the sheriffs in the U.S. are elected officials. It makes it political. It makes it very, very political. I did a, James worked with me on it, uh, along with a couple other folks in the company. We did a little presentation that we... Uh, gave to a number of people that said there were, and I have to think of the numbers, there were 6,500 and change dispatch locations in the United States for 911. There were another 3,000 ballpark locations that took 911 calls and then relayed it to a dispatch station. Interact had over 30% of the counties in the U.S. as customers and lots of cities and states. But the centers could have been utilizing cloud computing, organized such that three large cloud computing centers could handle all of the calls in the United States, dispatch far more effectively, have far better statistics on exactly what was happening, and operate it at maybe 4 to 5% of what was being spent for the 6,500 dispatch locations in the country staggering, right? But every sheriff, that was his kingdom. And the states and the cities and the police chiefs and the, you know, the, the head of state police, those were things that they weren't going to give up without a, without a fight. We were successful in doing statewide dispatch capabilities for state police in a number of states. And we actually had some of the states cooperating with each other to have enhanced law enforcement, but that's as close as we could ever come. It's the only way to do uh, a cloud-based modern technology would be to start with a clean sheet of paper and mandated it. And that would be, that would be similar to uh, vaccine mandates. <laughs> you wouldn't have a lot of agreement. Well, I want to end on a, on a good note. <laughs> John, what do you see on the horizon for the Intel Alumni Network? What's going on with personal? Just something, let's end on a positive note here. I want to say that Pat, I think, is exactly what Intel needs. Pat is bringing with him the culture. I listened to you know, him talk a number of times now. And I worked with Pat when I was with Intel. He's a great guy. He's very smart. And he's exactly what Intel needs. And I think Intel's going to ascend 
into a, a very prominent position again, be the darling of the semiconductor industry again. I absolutely believe so. That's that's one thing to end on, and I think the other one is the work of the alumni network and the way Pat views the alumni network is wonderful. There's a whole lot of talent in that network, and for the most part, I think everybody that held pretty much everybody that worked for Intel and held responsible positions and loves the loves the company. You know, we all had a great time at Intel, and that alumni network is more than ready to help. And I'm sure there. That James and the guys that James is working with in the alumni network can can make that work even better. So I'm excited about it. Fantastic. So John, I want to thank you for your time today on the Silicon Valley podcast. I want to thank James Cape for setting up this interview. Also the Intel alumni network for all their help and support in making this and many of the other interviews take place. John, if you want, if anyone wants to find out more information about you, what you're working on, LinkedIn, is there any way to reach out to you or is it's now the golf course only? I, I do have a LinkedIn account. I don't really use it. I, you know, when I get an alert, I respond if I know the people. <laughs> so fantastic. Reach out to James Cape at the Intel Alumni Network. <laughs> he knows me. I know him. I know how to get him. And, and for everyone at home, if you enjoyed this episode, which I know everyone did, and I'm sure you got a lot out of it, please give us a review on iTunes or any of the other podcast platforms. We are now doing videos as well. Check out our YouTube channel and the SiliconValleyPodcast.com, our website. And once again, John, thank you for your time today on the Silicon Valley Podcast. My pleasure, Sean. Great to, great to be with you. Thank you for listening to the Silicon Valley Podcast. To access our resources, visit us at the SiliconValleyPodcast.com and follow our host on Twitter, Facebook, and LinkedIn at Sean Flynn SV. This show is for entertainment purposes only. Before making any decisions, consult a professional.